Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Ladies and gentlemen, Trap Stars, welcome back to the Trap Draw Another owner's edition. Just want to give a, a a warm thank you to Mr. Jeezy as always. And I'm joined, you know who it is. It's TC. It's KVV. Gentlemen, how are we feeling? You know who this is. This is AC. <laughs> Neil, I think you're an honorary ball knower. I got to say, you know, we, we've been throwing that term around uh, on the, the trap draw NFL stuff. I feel like it's time to make you an honorary ball knower. You know, I, I would say a historical ball knower. Okay. Maybe not a current events ball knower. Sure. Um, I, I need I need to, you know, I I think I finished 11th in my fantasy league this year. It's okay. it's been it's been a tough season NFL wise for me, but uh I, I try to be a historical ball knower. So I appreciate that, KVV. I will take the honorary title. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things you you know, you're you're not necessarily applying your ball knowing skills mm-hmm. properly, but you, you have said skills, you have said, you know, philosophy. Neil, I will say it's trapezoids, it's not trapezoids. trap stars. Okay. Uh, you're going to need to apologize to Poosh for that one. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think, perfect uh, timing to uh, thank our first partner. Uh, a new segment coming to you in 2024 uh, on the Trap Draw. It's the Serve Pro Mea Culpa segment. So the Mea Culpas will be presented by Serve Pro. He's the number one brand in cleanup and restoration and is known for making any mess like it never even happened. With over 200 lo- <laughs> 2,000 excuse me, locations nationwide, they're faster to any size disaster. So speaking of making things like they never even happened, today's mea culpas. You know what, guys? I'll kick it off. Uh, I'll apologize for the uh, for the trapezoids mix up there. That's an easy one. But also, um, I, a couple Jerry Jones episode things I want to go back to. First, the pronunciation of text shram. So shram, it, it does not rhyme with rom. It's not text shram. It's text shram rhymes with jam. So even, it, even as we were pre- preparing for this episode, Neil goes, all right, so we got to make a culpa on text shram, right? It's shram. Not, it's like, no, it's shram. I'm, he nailed it when we went live, though. I was on the edge yeah. of my seat with anticipation. Was he going to get it right? And he did. So I literally job. put the notes in Ball the agenda. Nordale. Rhymes with jam does not rhyme with rom. He spelled it wrong in the agenda, though. <laughs> he spelled it S-T-R-A-M in the agenda. Well, regardless, so. you know, uh, a shout out to Texas family, uh, and and we'll do our best to uh, to get that one right. The other thing I wanted to call out: a few um, listeners DM'd, uh, and one, you know, just some 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 Texas folks out there wanted to correct a few things. Not really a, a mea culpa of getting something wrong, but more of an omission. And I thought uh, this was a good one. Jerry Jones apparently is very good about letting local radio and TV analysts criticize the team. I think he's been good at that throughout his whole ownership tenure. Um, and I think that's worth calling out in today's environment. When you look at the Orioles spending their play-by-play announcer last season for being critical. Uh, I know there's been a lot of chatter uh, in NBA circles about the local broadcast teams just being cheerleaders, you know, for their local team, the team that they work for. Um, so I thought that was something that, you know, Jerry should be shouted out for. Yeah. Jerry understands how to, how to create juice and, uh, you know, it's, you know, he, like he even calls into some of those local radio, like his, you know, talking to some of the ticket guys and all that. Uh, one other thing, a lot of people got on us about, uh, we just weren't hard enough on the Patriots and craft for the whole 
Aaron Thal, you know, Aaron Hernandez uh, situation. TC, which, I, I got to say, I, would, I wish you would have spent like an hour on the doghouse that Aaron Rodgers built. The life's like the full-size <laughs> doghouse they had in his backyard. Remember that when the cops were like searching? They were like, it was like a children's castle. They were basically going in there to, to see if perhaps there were Aaron Rodgers or, or yeah, yeah, Aaron you Hernandez. Might Hernandez. Hernandez. <laughs> we might need to call Sarah <laughs> you, Pro in for that one. You said, you said Aaron, Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers. Oh, excuse me. My, <laughs> Aaron Rodgers may have been on my mind uh, a bit uh, recently, but Aaron Hernandez. Listen, I, you know, I'm not I'm not, let's see, I'm not unconvinced that Aaron Rodgers didn't kill Epstein, or Aaron Hernandez didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't kill Epstein. Wow, live mea culpa is being lobbed right here for the first anyway. time ever on the trap draw. Yeah. And this is, and this is, this is no longer part of the ad. All right, we might have to, we might have to get our editor to make those like they never even happened. Uh, KVV, you got a mea culpa? Yeah, I got kind of a reverse mea culpa, Neil. Uh, I got a couple people who, who emailed me be like, hey, Love the show. Appreciate what you guys do. But I got to tell you, you got the stuff about the Little Rock 6 wrong. It was a Little Rock 9. And I got to say no, actually. Uh, I was educating wow. some Ar- Arkansians or Arkansasians on their own civil rights history. The, it, yeah, the Little Rock 9, of course, was a famous uh, civil rights integration moment. But so was the Little Rock 6 at North Central Little Rock High School. And Jerry Jones was present for that one. Uh, I don't know that maybe they're in textbooks there in Arkansas. They don't. They only have time for one uh, sort of uh, National Guard being present for an integration moment. But there were two different incidents, and one of them was called the Little Rock Six, and that's where Jerry Jones was present on the steps. To their credit, both guys who emailed me, I was like, wow, you have educated me. Thank you, KVV, ball knower <laughs> KVV, for this moment. So. I'll be that. really honest. I thought we were going to get so much more flack from the Jerry Jones episode yeah. of like, it's such a hefty... Sure. lift and there's no way you could do the guy justice in in you know an hour an hour and a half and i think you know i was pleasantly surprised by the lack of hostility towards us from i think from people understood tc when you called it the beginner's guide to jerry jones because obviously there's a graduate level course that you could take you could get real deep on some of that yeah. stuff but uh, i think we hit up the most important things yeah tc anything to apologize for no i think we're beyond beyond reproach um uh, <laughs> you know we had a tornado here in town yesterday. I'm sure be some surf, you know, if anybody's listening in Jack's, there's some surf you know, pro. Good, po- good, good, good surf pro. Well, that's perfect. There, if, yeah. you, if you have any tornado <laughs> issues, surfpro.com or call 1-800-SURF-PRO today. We, we appreciate them sponsoring the mea culpa segment uh, this year. All right. I, we do have first owner. We're doing two today. First guy definitely wish he could call surf pro for a recent event. He's been in the news. It involves throwing drinks at Jags fans. A, cl- a true right. cleanup. A true mm-hmm. cleanup. Uh, TC is going to spearhead our dive into David Tepper's life and career. TC, take it away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely been in the news lately. Uh, you know, obviously fired his coach, Frank Reich, after firing Matt Rule, after firing Steve Wilkes, after, uh, firing Ron Rivera in season. So, you know, a lot of, a lot going on there on the, on the, you know, terminations, uh, but this is uh, this is definitely the fastest that an owner has ever taken ownership and then made it onto the trap draw to be discussed as an owner. So you you know you have to really do some dirt to be able to to get that right yeah. away. Well, just yeah. a lot of so, chatter out there about him having the the title belt for worst owner right now. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's funny though. I didn't really like know that much about him, or you know, like I just knew he was like a kind of a a hedge fund just finance guru, but you know, didn't really know 
what his story was. And I don't know, I kind of find myself like I'm a little bit drawn to the guy uh, mm. after researching him. Uh, he was born on September 11th, 1957, okay. which is, is tough yeah. uh, in uh, So he's 66 years old at the moment. He's from Pittsburgh. He's Pittsburgh through and through. Yes, he guys. is. His, uh, his dad was an accountant. Uh, his mom was a grade school teacher. I don't know if it's, like, it said on Wikipedia that was an accountant, but I didn't get that sense in his commencement speech they did in 2018 hmm. at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, it didn't sound like his dad was, you know, the most white collar dude. It sounded like he was more like rough and tumble Pittsburgh. Uh, within is, that speech, this is why you can't copy Wikipedia as, as we've learned. Exactly. Uh, I went to the primary source docs, you yeah, know, so, uh, you know, the, the commencement speech, he talked in it about buying the Panthers and he started crying. He's like, Hey, like oh. a kid, kid, a kid who couldn't afford to go to a Steelers game is now approved to buy the, you know, a uh, NFL team. And he started crying, but within that, he talked about his dad and working hard ends meet. And then he said, my dad had a bad side too. He was physically abusive to me. Ooh. I'm sure it was a cycle that he got from his father and that his father got from his father. There was nothing more terrifying in my life. And I prayed that I would never be the same to my children. And the greatest accomplishment of my life, I broke that cycle. And, uh, you know, he got a standing ovation at the commencement speech and talks about, you know, after that kind of going to an inner city high school and how they couldn't even have fans in the stands when the two rival high schools would play. Um, you know, a lot of both socioeconomic and racial animus there. Um, and, you know, kind of, he said he, he started um, his first job. He applied to work at McDonald's and he got denied working for McDonald's. And I denied. think this is, this whole thing is like David Tepper is one big fucking chip on the shoulder. Like that's, mm. that's, that's how he comes off to me of like, he just wants to prove the world wrong. He attended Pitt. He paid his way through school, attended Pitt, and then went to work for a bank for a couple of years and then went back to Carnegie Mellon uh, or back to Pittsburgh, back to Carnegie Mellon, got his, uh, I think the equivalent of an MBA now, but it was like a management and industrial sciences or something like that. So, but he was unsatisfied with his role at the bank. Neil, he sold knives door to door at oh, one yeah. point. He, he mentioned oh. that in his commencement speech. I know you probably uh, probably find find some community with him on that front. Not sure if they're Cutco or not. Wait, um, Neil, it, did you yeah. sell knives? For yeah, I sold oh, Cutco yeah. for a summer, uh, oh, freshman wow. year of college. How did that go? It went really well. Uh, did it? Yeah. Was I mean, it like I made a door to door thing or making well, calls? It was more or? of a pyramid scheme. You call your parents' friends and then they give you numbers <laughs> to call and then you tap into like a rich elementary school pipeline who have never okay. seen the penny get cut or, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the whole spiel. <laughs> and so then I, I kind of raked at the beginning of the summer with, with friendlies. And then at the end of the mm -hmm. summer with like people that didn't really know the, the, the whole spiel. So wow. we, we could take that to another trap draw episode. though. Sure. <laughs> well, one thing I just love about these is we get to find out each things about each other. You yeah, know, of course. Just yeah. Like good investigated into, into our own lives. So, yeah. So Tepper, he gets this job with Republic steel, all of his business school buddies are shitting on him because he gets this job at Republic Steel and there's an across-the-board pay cut at Republic Steel. And they're like, oh, Tep, you you really chose wisely going to work for Republic Steel. Then, then he goes to work for Keystone Mutual Funds. Then in 1985, he goes to Goldman Sachs, which I think he had been denied from a position there previously. And so he goes to work for Goldman Sachs in their high-yield group as a credit analyst. And, and this is back in the 80s. Yeah. And TC... 
I, I probably yeah. mentioned on the chapter before, I'm in the middle of this book, Den of Thieves, which is all yeah. about this. And Goldman has all the egg on their face. They're like head junk bond, high yield guy gets like, they're at the center of this whole savings and loan junk bond shit show in the yeah. late eighties. And it sounds like Tepper was sitting at the center of the hurricane, which is sick. Well, yeah. So he's this bankruptcy, just the worst assets, yes. right? Just like vulture capitalism, the junkiest junk bonds, you know, ever. And he's credited with doing big things at, at uh, Goldman during the 1987 market crash. And basically like, you know, a lot of people kind of credit him with like helping to save the firm. And he's not even, you know, he's an analyst at this point. He's, he's you know, he's on the, he's just on the desk. So he's figuring, all right, I'm going to get partner. Like it's a shoe in. He gets passed over for partner because he was just loud and profane as fuck. Like just like even in like his commencement speech, he's like, hey, I'm trying to keep this as like above board. And, you know, and and that seems to be kind of a theme with him as well. Like people have described the, you know, his current offices is like it's like walking into like a really upscale frat house or like a really upscale like sports bar where like you just feel like you're in you know, kind of a dude's room. So he gets passed over for partner twice in two years, uh, kind of on the backside of that. And then he branches off on his own and uh, he kind of operates from a buddy's uh, desk for a while, trading out of his own personal account uh, to basically, you know, raise enough money to start his own fund. Starts his own fund, Appaloosa, in 93. Which even, and, even the name stands out as, yeah. as like, Pittsburgh, <laughs> you know, like when yeah. you start to compare it to like every Appaloosa other hedge, every, every other hedge fund or financial shop, like Appaloosa doesn't scream like highbrow to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, you know, it kind of sounds yeah very, very Rust Belt or very Appalachia. And then, yeah, basically it just starts absolutely cleaning up. I mean, uh, all of the, you know, everybody says he's like one of the ballsiest just makes ridiculous plays on stuff god damn our fucking lawn people are here they like like it never fails like they they show up it like like i'll have like one podcast in a week and they show up like 10 minutes into that podcast every time it's unbelievable <laughs> like should leave this in <laughs> Fantastic. David Dever like would have those people murdered. TC. Yeah. They would just. Well, that, oh, well, that was, there was, there's all sorts of quotes out there of like, uh, let me, God, let me find this quote of, yeah, he just like always characterizes himself as an upper middle class guy who happens to be a billionaire. He said, he said when he goes, when he goes to a restaurant, yeah, like if someone's an asshole, like a waiter, I think I could just buy this place and fire that guy. <laughs> like that's like the way this guy's mind works. I, I had it, TC. And, I had it yeah. written down. Like Tepper is the embodiment of like money doesn't change people. It just accentuates what's like, you know, kind of already either is good or sucks about that person. And it, it seems like Tepper seems like the kind of guy at this point, he should not sit down for an interview because like a lot of, uh, I got a lot of quotes in here from this New York mag profile in 2010. And it's just like, man, you probably just shouldn't say that stuff. Like, and but he also doesn't give a fuck. So, you know, he kind of I'm kind of with you. The more I research him, the more I'm like, man, what an asshole. But like he doesn't care what I think. So good for him. Yeah. As as you can hear the blowers outside my, my garage door here. It's funny too. I have artificial turf in my backyard, and the, the lawn people still manage to come at the wrong time in the backyard. Um, 
but we're just going to power through it. Tepper also has a tendency of saying, you know, you know why I was successful? I was never afraid to go back to Pittsburgh and work in the steel mills. Mm. Like that's, you know, so it's kind of like, Hey, you know what? Like I started from the bottom and I, you know, I was born in this shit kind of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, basically like his business career is just like, he, the guy's a force of nature. Like he, he, he keeps a, a set of brass testicles on his desk. TC, the quote Big on brass that testicles. is, yeah. quote, Tepper has a pair of brass testicles, cartoonishly huge and grotesquely <laughs> veiny. They are affixed to a plaque inscribed with the words, the most valuable set of all time and are not out of place at all in Appaloosa's offices, which resemble a high-end sports bar. Uh, yes. The balls were a gift to Tepper from a former employee, uh, Alan Fournier, Fournier, I can't, you know, I can't pronounce names, uh, who now runs his own fund, Pennant Capital Management, in the wake of Tepper's big score in 2003. Tepper had purchased the distressed debt of three of the three then largest bankruptcies in corporate history, Enron, WorldCom, and insurance giant Conseco. When they emerged from bankruptcy and the debt appreciated, Appaloosa went up a whopping 148%. So basically, just- yeah, sorry, from reading this stuff, it's like he just, it, going back to the Goldman days, when you're investing in this distress stuff, he just kind of had the stomach to like ride it out longer than anybody else, like go deeper into the bet and ride it out for longer. And there was another quote in this article. Um, it said, those trades were classic Tepper, according to his former analyst. Uh, in that they were complicated in execution, but simple in theory. Quote, he takes a macro perspective on something, for instance, for instance, this European sovereign crisis, which is that it's not going to be that bad. And then instead of using it like in, in investing in currency or something macro, he then applies it to like a micro stock or goes really, really hard on like, well, of course, like WorldCom and Enron, like the people that have debt are going to get paid out first. So I'm just going to go buy up as much of that as I can get. And I'm just going to sit on it and like, I'm not going to lose my nerve. And it's like, it's kind of crazy, but like, that's, you know, I, I do admire that because that's really fucking hard to do. It was the same thing in like, uh, after, you know, 07, 08, like into 09, he's like, everybody's freaking out about like hyperinflation and all that. And he's like, no, nah, like the markets are going to adjust. Like, we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll get through it. And like, sure enough, they do. And then he's long on certain stuff like Amazon and Alibaba and stuff like that. That's you know, kind of foundational as well. Can we just pause for a second and think about the fact that his friend Alan had to find like a brass sculptor and be like, hey, I wanted this pair of balls and I want you to make them like extra big and extra veiny. Like don't don't short me on the veins in these balls, all right? Because I want them to really represent the, the fortitude that my friend David Tepper has. And then some brass sculptor had to sit there and like, you know, picture some balls or, you know, look at pictures of balls and then, you know, craft them and deliver them. And we should put this New York mag, uh, profile and we'll put it in the show notes. Cause it's, it's definitely worth a read. The other thing he keeps, uh, like one of his companies he invested in is like a Silicon, like breast implant company. And he would keep like the, the like breast implants on his desk and he'd like throw it at people. And he thought it was like really, like, I guess really funny. Uh, so. <laughs> I might throw some silicon breast implants at the, at the lawn guy. The lawn guys. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, Fight for my fucking life over here. Oh man, <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh, I mean, it's 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 just crazy too. Like the amount of money that this guy's making. Like you know, he had a sixty-one percent return in 01. He had this huge fourth quarter in 05. Like just like urban legend shit on Wall Street. 
cleaned up in 09. He made $4 billion personally. Like the firm made 8 billion, cleared 8 billion. He made 4 billion personally. I think he's, he's up to 16, 18, $20 billion, you know, just, and all from just like this, you know, betting his own money basically at the start here. And then, um, but TC, and it seems, yeah. Juxtapose that with like his offices. Like I know where they are. They're out by the short Hills mall in New Jersey. Right. in like a nondescript red building. And another thing from this article was like, quote, he's been known to badger the secretaries about spending too much money on paper cups for the office. And for years he drove to work in a rusted minivan, even while one employee notes half the people in the office were driving Porsches. So, you know, it's that like just desire and drive to make as like the, the goal is just to make the money. But at the same time, it's like, no, 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 we are not going to let the cost creep up over here, you know, and just kind of be. We're making money our way, yeah. too. Like, Which, we're a, we're a know, lean shop. We're not going to forget what got us here in the first place. Like, he lived in a pretty modest house in New Jersey. I think he moved down to South Beach for a while. Like, he moved the the firm down there in 2016 and then moved back to Jersey. Because he, he, he got divorced in 2016. He was married for 30 years. He's got three kids. Um through his first wife, and then was remarried a few years ago. And I think she's from New Jersey. She went to Rutgers, his new wife. And he moved moved back to New Jersey in, I think, 2000. And like he's paying like 100 to $120 million in state income tax a year in New Jersey because of that move. Neil, my, I mean, I think the, by far the best, the best story out there is the, the one about the house in the Hamptons. For sure. Do you want to, do you want to handle that? I'd be one? happy to. So TC alluded to his days at Goldman. So Tepper didn't do a good job, uh, climbing the political ladder at Goldman. He had a really good relationship, with, like the head of his division, but his direct boss or, or so it was the other way around the guy that like when he became this all-star and he kind of got Goldman out of all this trouble by buying up the bonds of like all these distressed banks. Uh, and then they wrote it out and then Goldman came out like looking really good in the, I think the early nineties, uh, he got passed over by this guy, John Corzine, twice to become a Goldman partner. And, and I think what's really funny about this is, you know, he was basically described as like too brash, too crass, too confrontational, a know-it-all, just not really Goldman material. What's funny is you fast forward like 30 years, and that sounds a lot like their current boss, David Solomon, DJ Diesel. Uh, mm-hmm. If you read a, another recent like New Yorker article about him, he's taken, he's kind of not the traditional Goldman mold but he gets passed over two years in a row so he bounces but you know like tc said just a a massive chip on his shoulder so you fast forward to after appaloosa takes off in the early 2000s he bought john corzine's house in the hamptons but it was his ex he he got divorced so his ex-wife had the hamptons house he bought it And, and by the way corzine's like a u.s senator at this point from new jersey uh, he's friends with he's friends with Neil's guy Bob Menendez. Neil, For sure. I, I, he, he okay, to, so Corzine sure lost the house in the point. divorce. Lost the house in the divorce. And Tepper buys it. But it, gets, it goes on the market from the ex-wife. He buys it for like forty six or forty seven million. He razzes it, just basically burns it, just like knocks, demolishes the whole thing, burns it down, and then pisses on the ash. And then he builds basically. a house that is. Uh, let me find my notes here because it's good stuff. Uh, Tepper's mansion located in the Hamptons took over five years to build and sits on the grounds of his old boss's former home that he purchased for $43.5 million. So he bought the house, 
and just knocks it down and builds one that's like twice as big. The, the new 11,268 square foot home is almost exactly twice the size of his boss's home and boasts a giant swimming pool, pool house, three-car garage, and tennis court with the home facing out towards the ocean. Uh, the home is surrounded by lush green rolling lawns, has a separate guest house, a massive driveway with manicured gardens, and a jacuzzi relaxation area overlooking the ocean. And then he said, that was all from a separate article, uh, but in the New York Mag article, he said, quote, you can say there's a little justice in this world, Tepper said, referring to getting the last laugh over Corzine. <laughs> this is wow. like so 25 years later. He wasn't at Goldman. He wasn't at Goldman when this happened. Like he no, did no, this later. was like 20 years later. So, okay. but it was kind of like, I'll, I'm going to buy the, uh, you know, yeah. the ex's house. I'm going to buy the old boss's house and get the last laugh here. He's still got that chip on his shoulder. That's incredible. Yeah. I love that. So I kind of love stories like that about rich people's extreme pettiness. Like if you're, I think when we do these series, what we've sort of, what common that emerges is just like how relentlessly driven so many of these like, you know, scrappers who came from nothing were, and then how like little petty slights, like basically motivated them, motivated them forever to just work their ass off. Yeah. And it seems like too, there's a deep sense of, you know, it may not be like treating people great, but it seems like there's a sense of maybe fairness or justice with mm -hmm. him where that was one of the positive things he said he learned from his dad was like, who do you treat better? The president or, or your garbage man. And he's like, both like you treat them both the same right but, it's not like you treat the garbage man better but he but he may not have like a great you know track record of treating his own employees that way or whatever but it kind of feels like if you're in you're in kind of thing until you're not well um, it seems like he's a he's yeah. got a jekyll and hyde personality a little bit it sounds like in the office during business hours like there's a quote in there about he'd say like do you know what a schmuck is to like an employee and they he'd be like go look in the mirror but then like you know he'd <laughs> walk to the car with them and he, they, they didn't, you know, it keeps everybody like, like way off balance. Uh, another good one was when Tepper coached elementary school kids in softball, he could be heard screaming all the way down the block. <laughs> which is sick. <laughs> which is, like, which is kind of sick. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of yeah. into that. And he gives like, like he's given like $160 million to his alma mater, like to Carnegie Mellon, like the business school is named after that. I, there's a quad named the Tepper quad. There's, Given a bunch of money to Pitt. He's, you know, like granted, you know, yeah, I'm sure like he's getting tax breaks and all, there's all sorts of stuff here and there, but like, it seems like there's a, there is a charitable element in wanting to pay it forward to, he's very much like a bootstrap, you know, Hey, I lifted mm -hmm. myself up on my bootstraps kind of guy. TC, I got one, one more Tepper thing yeah. before we talk a little bit about the, the Panthers. And uh, I want to touch on Jerry Richardson too. So I found this, I did a little search on New York Times archives, 2011, there's an ATM story in the Hamptons. Uh, apparently somebody left a receipt in a uh, Capital One ATM out in East Hampton. Uh, yeah. And the balance said $99,864,731.94. And the person took out $400. So somebody had 99 million dollars yeah, in a savings account that was getting like 1.1% interest. And so- there was this like whole thing where people were like, who could it be? And everybody was saying it was had to be Tepper. Like he's the only guy that would do this. It, would, it was like a flex, <laughs> but he denied that it was him. So I don't know if they ever found out who did it, but that, that was like, there were like two separate New York times articles, like featuring Tepper and everyone's like convinced it was him. <laughs> it's nuts. There's a famous story at ESPN that uh, Floyd May Mayweather took one of my colleagues and friends, Tim Keown to the ATM 
just to basically like show him the ATM receipt that said he had like $130 million in his like checking account or something. So kind of, Neil, do you want to do Panthers now or do you want to do kind of Tepper's like, so Tepper buys a, a 5% stake in the, in the Steelers in 2009, which what? is kind of continuing along with their owner and training program that, that they seem to be running over there where I'm sure the Roonies are getting chipped off of like, hmm. Hey, you're paying the Piper. You're going to pay, you know, 30% over what the market value is here while they vet you as a future owner kind of thing. Right. Cause they've done this with several of the other owners. They did it with Haslam. We about. looked at that. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of a, Hey, like full circle moment for him of like, you know, grew up being a big Steelers fan. And then, so we'll fast forward to 2018 Panthers. You want to talk about Jerry Richardson, Neil? Yeah. So Jerry Richardson born July 18th, 1936. Of course, uh, he, is the original founding owner of the Panthers. I think he kind of approached the NFL in the late 80s, like 89 or maybe 1990, and said, like, I want to bring a franchise to uh, the state of North Carolina. Uh, and he was former very... player. Yeah, former one of the... Uh, since George Hallis was the only other former NFL player to uh, be an owner. Um, and I have a few friends in North Carolina. This guy's, like, very, very well-regarded. Um, he's kind of like the North Carolina's favorite son. Good football player, flanker halfback. I kind of want to bring the term flanker back. I, I was, I've always liked yeah. that as a football term, um, played at Wofford. And then he went on to play for the Baltimore Colts, caught a touchdown pass in the NFL championship from Johnny Unitas, uh, to wow. beat the New York giants at all. 31 to 15. And then he got traded to the giants, but he ended up quitting. So, uh, he still holds some Wofford single game records. He's a, like, I think Wofford's biggest alum by far. Could be a mea culpa uh, coming for that, but uh, yeah. it seems like he gave Jerry Richardson and and uh, William McGirt. You know, there one you go. And two right there. Um, <laughs> so after after he oh also TC Jerry Richardson was a KA just like you and Randy. Um, so we oh. you've been in the family here on the trap draw. Neil also Jerry Richardson died. I just want to make no. I was going to say he that he died in March <laughs> of last year. So okay. um, we we're not there yet, man. We're not there yet. So after after well, you're saying is is one of uh, their most famous. Uh, was yeah. I mean he I think he still is technically one of the most still famous alum, even if he's not alive. Yeah. Anyway, so after he he quits the NFL after I think two or three seasons, he takes his NFL championship bonus and he pours it into the uh, franchise of Hardee's in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is where Wofford's located. From there, he starts basically a company called Spartan Foods and he franchises like all the Hardee's, just all of them. So that's where he starts, and then he turns that into Flagstar, which becomes the sixth largest food service company in the United States, controlling 2,500 restaurants and providing jobs for over 100,000 employees and retires in 95. Um, I feel like Mark Brunel tried to do the same thing in Jack's after he retired. He bought up all these Whataburgers. He went bankrupt within like five years. Tough. So, yeah, so – Richardson, you know, I guess storied business career and then kind of, you know, stays in in the Carolinas region his whole life. And I think he was very adamant with the NFL that he wanted the Carolina Panthers to be a regional team um, based in Charlotte. So always, you know, it's always kind of noticeable when it's like the Carolina Panthers. I, I don't get that sense as much like Arizona Cardinals is another, I guess, another one. What am I, what, what are there any other NFL teams I'm missing that are like new? I mean, New England, Patriots, New England, I guess too. Okay. So it's not, one. yeah, there's a few of them. Um, like Carolina hurricanes or, you know, they're in Raleigh, but they're same, similar concept. Sure. Right. Green Bay is certainly a, a regional yeah. team. But I think what's worth mentioning. And the reason I wanted to bring up Richardson was like, he had a lot of sway 
he, it sounds like he came in and was immediately impactful as an owner. And he had a lot of respect from the other owners. And I think if you look, you know, Carolina's been in the Super Bowl twice. And I'd say getting a franchise off the ground in the 90s and, and seeing that kind of success is, you know, worth lauding. He was also instrumental in the player lockout in 2011. So he he kind of led negotiating negotiations uh, on a new players agreement. So it sounds like a he was very, kind of a hard ass too. <laughs> a very public racist is if we're getting there. Uh, well, we're case. getting there. <laughs> we're, we're definitely getting there. So um, he played a huge role in that. And then after firing George Seifert in 2001, he didn't hold another press conference. Didn't hold another press conference. Uh, until he took questions or, or he didn't hold another press press conference where he took questions from the media for nine years until he oh, wow. uh, basically announced he wasn't going to extend John Fox's contract uh, in 2010. I guess the one memorable moment, he kind of was pretty hands off with the organization. It seemed like, or he liked to remain behind the scenes. Like he didn't want to do press conferences or anything, but he was pretty active in the Greg Hardy domestic violence events. Like he oh, like yeah. personally said, like, we're not resigning this guy. Like, he, and he, and he, his quote was like, because we do the right things here or something, you know, very, very basic like that. So in 2017, uh, Sports Illustrated reported that the former, that four former Panthers employees were given significant monetary settlements due to the inappropriate workplace comments and conduct by Jerry Richardson. The accusations accused. It's like that- another Jerry, uh, not necessarily Jerry himself but some of jerry's lieutenants that we were talking about last time around right yeah it, it sounds like it included both sexual language and conduct and then apparently a racial slur directed at a panther scout uh it was tough timing because the year before they were, it was almost like a little bit of a i think a media tour on how richardson was a quote champion of diversity uh with hmm. cam newton at qb and ron rivera as the coach uh so it was kind of like maybe set up to on this pedestal. And then maybe that's not really what, what Jerry Richardson was all about. Um, so I feel like we're, we're also washing over the Ray Carruth stuff happened on, on this watch as well. That's true. Which is, not good which is why the Greg Hardy quote is why I called that out of like, Hey, we do the right things here. It's like, ah, oh, well maybe you weren't really doing the right things. There's some stuff we just didn't really know about until 2017. But which is like, if, if you're a Panthers fan, it's reassuring that you may, your guy, current guy may be throwing drinks on people, but there's not people getting murdered in cars or like throwing, you know, I think Greg Hardy's thing was he was throwing through a woman on top of like his guns and beat the crap out of her. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. What the the crack and stuff was tough. Really tough. Yeah. Um, Hardy was our, our previous guy, Jerry Jones went and signed Greg Hardy then right after that. Yeah. Greg Hardy was <laughs> a bad guy. So anyway, TC to bring it back to the sale. So a lot of Panthers fans assumed that Richardson would pass the team down to his two sons, Mark and John. Um, but in 2009, they, they both just like resigned together. Uh, and it sounds like it was like kind of um, like his dad with his dad, their dad's blessing. And then unfortunately, Richardson's son, John, died of cancer in 2013. So I don't have a whole I don't have a lot more there. Um, but then shortly thereafter, Richardson told Charlotte Media that he wanted the team sold after his death to someone that would keep the team in Charlotte. And so he ends up selling it before he dies. He sells the team in, yeah. I think, 2018 to Tepper, and then he died in 2023 uh, in Charlotte, age 86. So that brings us up to the Tepper stuff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be some North and South Carolinians that will chime in with all sorts of Jerry Richardson stuff. Listen, this this isn't a Jerry Richardson podcast, and the Carolinas are the most parochial place in the country, maybe other than like 
St. Louis. Well, that's because that's why they ride for their guy. I mean, he's a homegrown, yeah. homegrown guy. So I feel like we, we would be remiss if we're talking about the Panthers without sure. bringing oh, up Richardson. Yeah. Uh, sold the team yes. to Tepper for I believe two or two point two billion. It was two point two billion, and one of the reasons Tepper got it. Uh, there was another bid uh, from I'd never heard of him, but from Ben Navarro, who put together a group. But Tepper's was basically like all his money, whereas there was a bunch of outside parties involved. And Tepper got kind of fast tracked. Plus, he'd already been vetted through the Steelers, you know, kind of incubator program there. Um, and then, yeah, so he takes over in 2018. They're like seven and nine. They've got Keekly, they've got. Uh, McCaffrey, yeah, they got a pretty good like kind of core, right? Um, aging core, but 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 you know, Thomas very, Davis. Very, like they're yeah, like, I remember their dogs. defense, their linebackers yeah. were so freaking good, especially like that yeah. uh that Super Bowl run you know? with Cam Newton. I mean, they they only lost one game until the Super Bowl. I mean, that team was stacked. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, Marty Herney, all that stuff. They go seven and nine, and then Tepper fires Rivera the next year. Um, and they had some pretty good drafts like this, you know, 2018, 2019, they had Brian Burns, they had DJ Moore, all these guys. And then he fires Rivera in season, uh, Perry fuel finishes out the season goes, Oh, and four. And then Tepper just glowing brain stuff brings in Matt rule. Um, you know, fires, fires Herney early into, uh, rules thing brings, brings rule in from, where was he? Baylor at the time. He was formerly uh, of, yep. of Temple, and then he went to Baylor. Correct. Defensive guy. He drafted Derek Brown, the DN from Penn State, Gross Matos, Jeremy Chin. Like, pretty pretty good draft. And, you know, but rules just, by all accounts, he just, like, wasn't an NFL coach. Just, like, wasn't happy in the NFL. They go 5-12 and 12 in his second year. Uh, they totally whiff on the draft second year. And then, you know, rule gets fired uh, after the third year, 2022 season. And uh, Steve Wilkes takes over, or Rule gets fired in season. Uh, it goes one, it starts off one and four in 2022. Steve Wilkes comes in, uh, goes six and six. And Wilkes was, you know, kind of a homegrown coach for the Panthers. He had gone out, kind of gotten a, a raw deal out in, what was that, Arizona? He got hired at and then kind of flamed out there quickly. But everybody was riding for him to like keep the job. And, you know, and then they bring in, uh, and they bring in Frank Reich, and uh, we know how that went. Fitter God, and tough man, and uh, you know, and then Fitter gets fired. He's the GM, you know, the handpicked GM, and and you know, Reich goes one and ten, uh, and gets fired. You know, eleven games in or twelve games in. So, and it's all worth that's, noting, yeah. calling out the Bryce Young trade. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. I mean, yeah, you know, gives yeah, up a little elf first round pick. Now the Bears are going to have another first round pick. Like, I mean, maybe one of the the Best trades of all time by the Bears. Uh, yeah, which I kind of like that Tepper sort of threw his like a scouts and staff under the bus when he did a like a little press conference. It was like, well, you know, some you know, I was I thought CJ Stroud was a great pick, but you know, we as a building, I guess, agree, agreed that uh, Bryce Young would be the pick. It was like clearly he was pissed off that some you know people had led him astray in the analysis department here. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it seemed like, Hey, like win now we, you know, we've got this good defense. We want to capitalize on it. They didn't trade Brian Burns. Like the Rams were offering two first rounders allegedly end of 2022 season. They didn't make the deal. 
and then you know double down do the whole thing with with uh bryce and all that and in the midst of all of this there's the uh the practice facility that they were trying to build in rock hill south carolina that's right yeah this you know like massive massive project like a you know almost i think close to you know it was like this whole kind of practice facility indoor facility all this development around it it's it was just mired in all this crap and they they recently like demolished it just tore it down and he like the holding company that was holding the real estate for it he just like declared bankruptcy on it and he felt like they you know they had operate the the local municipality in rock hill south carolina had, had operated in bad faith and was you know wasn't doing what they said they were going to do on the tax breaks that were given so instead of like figuring out and you know just finishing the facility he said fuck you guys i'm tearing this thing down uh completely so uh, that's fascinating. I, you know, I feel like Charlotte's always one of those things where, like, it probably makes sense to have like an like a retractable roof stadium. Mm. You know, with kind of it seems like the kind of city that would want to host Final Fours and you know New Year's Day bowl games and stuff like that. And it seems like the it also Bank seems like stadium. This might be a recency bias, but it also seems like there's a monsoon game there at least yeah, right season where it's just like like the Falcons. Panthers game this year was just it's like just brutal weather and the team sucks and it's just like man you're kind of you're making it hard on everybody to uh you know like it's one thing if it's cold and snowy but when it's just like that cold rain it's almost even worse which is why you mm -hmm. probably want that retractable roof I, I yeah. kind of feel like in the future society where everything is, is blessed and perfect like all NFL stadiums should have a retractable roof like that would or be, be like SoFi where like it's open air but you have a you know, you have like a translucent top, yeah, or something, right? Or some of the stuff like, up, like, like that's what Jackson. No problem with the win. You know, the, the elements are, I think, a great factor of football. Um, I yeah. don't, I don't I agree. That's why, yeah, I think it's an interesting debate, right? Like, should it, should they have an effect? Like, should Buffalo have a retractable roof? Should you have to go no. up there, and that's an advantage? You know, maybe should it be yeah. the team's decision whether or not to open or close the roof based on their advantage? I don't know. Those are all like, is it kind of a disgrace that the Vikings have? have an indoor stadium yeah i think it is like the viking and they have a great stadium but you know what i think the vikings should play outside that should be part of their shtick you know the bears have to um, you know it's part of their shtick yeah. but you don't feel like um being indoors oh i think detroit should be outside as well you know like like cleveland cleveland should be outside like everybody in the afc north should be outside everybody in the nfc north should be outside you know so Makes for a good debate. um and, and so you know, all these, the Panthers fans fucking hate him. I mean, everybody hates And he like, the guy's willing to spend, spend money. And like, he wants best in class stuff and he just like, can't get out of his own way. Right. He, he he's like, Oh, for four on like big hires. He has a short fuse. Sounds like he just grinds people to death. He's doesn't he's, rule have like no offset in his uh, contract. Yeah, so, so that he's so going to be paying rule like 10 million a year for the next like four years. Yeah. And I think he tried to take, take rule to court on that and all sorts of stuff there. <laughs> and he also owns the FC Charlotte or Charlotte FC MLS team. He paid like 300 million plus for it. Hmm. Um, they like, he fired the coach. Like, he, I don't know. He like whiffed on the hiring and then he, he fired that coach after they almost, and then the like interim comes in and they almost make the playoffs and then he fires that guy. And then they've got a new sporting director from premier league. And yeah, I don't know. It's just like, 
it just seems like it's like dog just like like be confident in hiring the right people and then like let them carry out a long-term plan it's almost like his management of this franchise is so divergent from his management of his assets and investments of like hey buy something and then you know, kind of like don't like, but be long with it and, and stick with the plan, right? I, I actually see some of his, why he's been, this is my opinion, but it seems like why he's been successful with, you know, he's a trader, right? So there's a lot of like, not so much impulse, but like you, you got to get out, like you got to cut bait and and make decisions on the fly when you're, when you're trading. He doesn't seem to have a ton of like, long-term operational uh consistency like a trading floor is like a it's a boiler room man it's like a high stress like lots going on like we got to do this now 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 it's like very impatient and i i almost think but he seems to have conviction in his positions though like it's not like he's just doing a bunch of day trading and like making you know small slivers on margins he's like you know he's in it to win it for you know, some of these three or four year plays, right? Which is, I don't know. It's, it's fun. The question I have is like, it's hard to, when we, when I go back and look through this guy's background, it's like, man, it's hard to bet against a guy like this, you know, with all, yeah. Like he'll figure it out against all odds. Bankruptcy yeah. companies he's invested in all like the down years that turned into like 300% up years the next year. Like, you know, he'll, he'll stay the course on you, but I got it. I just do get a, little bit of joy when you see these masters of the universe try to take their you know oh my god i'm the smartest guy in the room thing into the nfl and just get bodied i mean he's just getting mm -hmm. flamed from everybody about being the worst owner in the nfl like that has it's to just sick. eat at him which is but that's also gonna like you know that's just gonna add to the chip on his shoulder and he's like cool like i'm gonna like i could kind of see it i'm trying to think of like who who another owner that you know who would be kind of a a comp for him that we've either already done or that's that kind of like they they almost have to learn how to get out of their own way right i think you would the easy answer would be snyder but i think he's a lot smarter and he's a lot more successful than yeah. dan i would say blank arthur blank based on the episode yeah. we did on him kind of came in like i'm a i'm a business genius um yeah like i know how to to run a company and, you know, he had a few moments where he fell flat on his face, but definitely had, I think blank, if you look back on his first four or five years, had more success. And some of the issues like the Mike Vick stuff wasn't blank's fault like that, you know, he may, but, but in a similar vein, definitely had, they, they have similar hiring tendencies where they just can't seem to hire the right people. Um, and, and they don't know when to cut bait. I think blank also probably enabled like, you know, yeah. Turn to blind eye to some of the Vic Remember, stuff as well. Did we talk in the blank episode? Did we talk about when Blank like pushed Vic's wheelchair around when he had <laughs> he got injured? That's like literally one of my favorite moments in the NFL in like the last twenty years. So the the owner just basically being the wheelchair pusher. For yeah, Blank strikes is the the guy that puts like head janitor on his business card. You know, when he's like the <laughs> chairman and CEO, it's like, get, get the fuck out of here, man. Which like, shout out to blank, like, you know, blank fired Arthur Smith. Like, I, yeah, although I feel like even in blanks, you know, kind of post post termination comments there, he's, he, it sounded like he was, he was more enamored with Arthur Smith's family than he was with Arthur Smith himself. He was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, Arthur comes from a great family. It's like, yeah, but he like didn't do a good job as coach, you know? So um, all that's to say, yeah, I think Tepper weirdly, like I'm not betting against the guy. Cause it's, it seems like he's, 
like this will be his life's work now to be successful yeah. as a, the Carolina Panthers owner. And he will figure out, all right, cool. Like similar to what, like, you know, the, the Redskins or the commanders or whatever the hell they're called, just, just did with, uh, you know, bringing in Bob Myers to, to, you know, assist with the, with the plan of like, all right, like he'll, he'll figure out, all right, who's the right person to bring in here, you know? And like, maybe, maybe he's so poisonous that nobody wants to work with him, but like when your checkbook's that big and like, he's, he's got like Steve Cohen money, you know yeah. what I mean? Like he's one of the most wealthy, Do you know, you know and like where part of the thing is like, it's like, it's like, why wouldn't, yeah. Where I don't he ranks know. I would, most wealthy Americans in the United States. Like, I would assume. Let's probably see. top 15 somewhere in there. I think I he, think. yeah, he's up to 13 billion, I think. I mean, here's, an, here's another quote from the New York Mag profile, and this is from 2010. So in the 17 years since he founded Appaloosa, its assets have grown from $57 million to $13 billion. And his annualized compound return in that time period is 30% net to investors, putting him in line with legendary money managers like Soros, Stan Druckenmiller, and Julian Robertson. So like all the, you know. And Bernie Madoff, too. Yeah, the finance crowd. Like he's like, he's like genius boy. Um, like, like he's, he's referred to as a golden God in the industry. Like, you know, it's so, I don't know. I'm kind of, the guy is kind of a force of nature. And, and at some point, yeah. Like if, if you're an asshole or whatever, like whatever, but like at some point it seems like the one inefficiency in the NFL market these days is coaching contracts and coaching salaries of like, you know, I, like it feels like, all right, the caps, what, $220 million or whatever, like you know what? It seems like a, like a coach could be worth $30 million a year, sure. right? Coach, mm -hmm. you know? And it seems like he's, if, if anybody's going to do that, it's him, especially cause he's like, he's going to have to pay above market value just to get the guys that he wants. Yeah. You know? So anyway, that's David Tepper. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and everybody says like the, the MLS team is first class as far as like, like they play at bank of America stadium. They draw well, um, puts money behind it their socials are great they're like it's a well-run team so i don't know we'll see what happens with the panthers <laughs> all right all right thank you thank tc you, Schuster, um, thank he's you. got that dog in him neil he does know? he does have some dog in him uh and before we get to our next owner i want to thank roback uh we're kicking off another year with roback and we couldn't be more excited fresh off new restocks for polos hoodies and q-zips the fit the feel the quality it's all perfect first Roback just restocked their hoodies and excited is an understatement. TC and I are both wearing one right now. Uh, you all know how much we love the Roback hoodies. They're soft, stretchy, and just so dang comfortable. They're great for activities and for working from home in the bleak NYC winter. Yeah, I plugged that line in uh, to the ad copy. You know, you all know they have the best performance Q-zips too. The definition of versatile, these Q-zips are made to keep you warm for an early round while you look sharp and remain comfortable. And finally, the Roback Performance Polos are also excellent. They have the best crisp collars, and they don't lose their shape. The designs are incredible, and the fit is far better than the old boxy polos uh, from yesteryears. Trust us when we say they're worth checking out. If you haven't already, it's time to load up on some Roback for yourself and for others. Use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, on Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com, and that's 20% off all bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code TRAP. Uh, get ready for golf season. Also, I've been wearing their uh, their workout shirts. Um, mm -hmm. The, uh, the, the kind of dry fit workout material has been great in the gym. So 
Go to Roback.com. Use code TRAP. 20% off your first order. KVV, you're up. Boom. We are going to visit a local guy for me. Well, the the <laughs> first... Phil's going to call him Steve, Steve Piscotti. <laughs> Piscotti. Steve Bishotti, uh, the first owner in this series who we can uh, honestly say that I know this person. If you're uh, some people, when I occasionally when I talk ball on the Twitter, some people are like, What do you know, golf writer? You don't, you don't know anything about the NFL. I'm like, Dog, I co- I've covered the NFL for like 20 years. This is the first fall in almost 20 years that I did not write about football. Uh, so I've been around the game just ball a knower. little bit. Yeah. I don't know. Well, hopefully ball knower. Hopefully I've, I've risen to the level of elder ball knower, uh, TC. Uh, Steve Ashotti was born in Philadelphia in 1960. Italian-American family, as should be obvious. Uh, but almost immediately, his family moved to Severna Park, Maryland in 1961. Uh, his father was a construction sales executive. Uh, you know, making sales, making, making sales. But you know what? His father passed away when he was eight years old. He died of leukemia, which was a pretty devastating, transformative moment in Steve's life. He's never really talked much about his father. Uh, I listened to a lot of interviews over the years, and it's something Steve is a pretty private guy, and that's a part of his, uh, I guess, background that he doesn't really crack open. Um, but he's praised his grandfather a lot for being the the basically the stepdad who stepped up. His grandfather, Gordon Johnston, essentially supported his family uh, after his father died. He paid the mortgage. He paid for Catholic school. Uh, even though his father was retired, he'd been a car salesman for almost 40 years. So the Bashadis, uh really had to kind of scrape money together, did not have very much of it uh, growing up in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. He said, uh, told the Baltimore Sun, 2004 my mom didn't let many dinner conversations go by without telling us how lucky we were to have my grandfather i was constantly exposed to the teaching you'd better work hard uh, KVD, Steve, quick question yes are um it seems like counties are a bigger deal in mm-hmm. maryland than they are elsewhere in the country that's a great question tc and i think you are speaking truth counties are pretty important in maryland uh there's a lot of regional pride in maryland about which county you're from uh there's very much like arundel boys are a thing like uh baltimore county boys you know baltimore city when i first moved to baltimore and worked for the baltimore sun in 2000 my assignment was to cover the howard county sports howard county is like the middle county between dc and baltimore and like super pretty wealthy county and lots of like pride uh, a lot of big la- girls lacrosse was huge there. They were known as being one of the the coolest or the best girls lacrosse and county then in the country. There's what Prince, there, Prince George's like, County. Yep, George's County. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's just I don't know. That's just stuck with me over the like over the years. If like yeah. I haven't spent a ton of time in Maryland, but you know everybody just kind of refers to the counties, especially like you know the Eastern Shore and all that stuff. Yeah, the Eastern Shore they don't get quite as much into the county thing there. It's just like if you're from the Eastern Shore, if you're from the other side of the uh, okay. the Bay Bridge, then that's kind of there. Even though there are a bunch of different counties there, people are like, oh yeah, I'm I'm an Eastern Shore kid. Sure. Uh, but Montgomery County, Prince George's County, those are all south around DC. Yeah. Those are like big deals. So gotcha. Arundel County is kind of I would say very blue collar, very kind of hardworking. Uh, that's where uh, Eisenhower the uh, preserve the Andrew Green redesign is that we've talked about okay. coming yeah. to visit. So there's also a super elite course that almost no one knows about there. It's called Anne Arundel National. The guy who used to run Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac built like a sort of an Augusta like replicate there, and that I, it gets. I'm not kidding. Like 
maybe 50 rounds a year. It's one of like the truly like the most, white oak. Yeah. It's town, truly, yeah. truly like super duper exclusive. I never even like set my eyes on like the fences outside. It's, it's like an unmarked road. You have to go down to find it. Uh, anyway, back to the Bashadis. Steve was a, a C student in high school uh, and was constantly kind of told by his teachers that he lacked focus. Uh, he later learned that this was because he had attention deficit disorder. He said, if you have learning disabilities and you're, you're bad at school, and if you're bad at school, you hate school. Uh, it was terribly challenging for me. It was very depressing uh, to sort of be just like a shitty student. Uh, he spent one year playing football. It was his senior year. Uh, he came out for the team and the coach was like, yeah, like you are slow. You are small. Like you're going to basically play special teams and defensive end. Uh, he went to Severna Park High School and they went two and eight. It was like their worst record in 30 years. So he knew kind of right away that even though he like tried to play basketball, tried to play football, he was not much of an athlete. Uh, he'd spent his summers in Arundel building essentially like the piers and the waterways, uh, which was like super intense work where you just be hammering nails for hours and hours. So he ended up at Salisbury State University, which is now Salisbury University. And he graduated uh, in four years there with a degree in liberal arts, uh, which I thought was interesting that, you know, nothing that Steve has done in his life would sort of lead you to believe that he was a liberal arts major. He got a job at a Baltimore staffing agency right out of college. Um, it was the the Kelly Girls Staffing. That was a marketing firm that like sent girls to like, Kelly services. And within 15 months, it was, the place like went bankrupt. And so he was basically, it was, a, it was a quote from one of his friends, Michael Bush, who's a big Maryland politician who grew up right around uh, where Mashadi did. He said, they laid him off one Christmas and he said he was determined to go out and establish his own business and compete against them. But before that kind of happened, he had like a meeting with his girlfriend's father and he, he was his girlfriend's father who suggested he start his own business. Steve told the Baltimore Sun in 2004, I was 23 years old and I had $3,500 in the bank. And his, his uh, eventual stepfather said, well, you ain't got far to fall, which I thought was a sick quote. He basically was like, all right, I'm going to go. Um, we're not well financed, um, but I'm, I'm too dumb to fail. I think I can do this. I know I can do it better from the company that I worked for. And he talked his two roommates into tearing out the basement bar that they had in their basement. And they basically like he went to Goodwill and he bought a bunch of desks and a couple of old phones. Sounds like he, the kill house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, and so he and his cousin, Jim Davis, not the Garfield guy, just to be clear, uh, started a business that placed engineers in the aerospace and technology sectors. They called it Aerotech. In the crappy sort of duplex they had in Annapolis, it had an orange, orange shag carpet that was held together with duct tape. So his cousin and himself, they paid each other, they paid themselves $100 a week as a salary. Uh, but he, he was like totally unafraid to borrow money. And to just basically say like, hey, we're going to be a recruiting firm. We're going to go and get like people fresh out of college with their engineering degrees. And we're going to have a service that basically places them in, you know, places in the aerospace industry or in engineering firms or whatever. And what he like realized at the time was that like the technology boom at the country was kind of exploding at this point. And companies were starting to realize like they didn't know how to recruit people. They didn't know how to find like good engineers. So he was like, I'm going to eliminate that. And also workers were starting to decide, like they didn't necessarily want to be tied to specific uh, companies forever. Like the, especially the technology people who wanted to bounce around and do a bunch of shit. And so he sort of fit this need of like, all right, we need someone, an engineer for six months. So we need someone, you know, a space design person a for, for a project for a year. And they basically those, everyone paid a fee to Aerotech 
and Aerotech handled all of the sort of placement stuff. Um, so they started with just like two clients, but after a year, they already had uh, $1.5 million in sales. Uh, so they were definitely like kind of exploding. They experienced 70 consecutive quarters of growth, uh, which is Seems good. pretty, pretty decent. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty high margin business too, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, so he basically, he said, um, after I, he said, I knew I could do it better when once I got successful, I was handling the Baltimore market, but I had a person who was assigned to the Northern Virginia market and he kept getting caught in traffic, like two or three hours of traffic every time we wanted to drive home. And eventually we had like six or seven contract engineers working down there. And I said, you know what? Screw it. Let's open an office down there. So we don't have to drive back and forth. And then the same thing happened when we cracked the code in Philly and then we did it in Orlando. And eventually you thought, you know what? We can do this like all around the country. And so business with Aerotech just kind of exploded. He and his buddy, Jim Davis, they started opening all kinds of different divisions of it. And basically what that became later was Allegis, which is like sort of a string of these different kinds of, uh, you know, temp agencies uh, under the uh, Allegis sort of umbrella in addition to Aerotech was like Act Talent, Tech Systems, Tech Systems Global Services, Ashton Carter, Allegis Global Solutions, Major Lindsay in Africa, Allegis Partners, Market Source, and then a thing called Getting Hired. Uh, all of this just like they, they essentially became like the second largest uh, like placement, like recruitment firm and, and temporary worker firm in the entire United States or the entire world held like 45,000 It's It's worldwide. wild. A couple notes there. I, I just remember how many contract and temp workers Google used. I think it was like double the full-time employee uh, like double the contractors Jeez. and yeah. and also shoddy needs to be in the running for the prestige worldwide award like the <laughs> names are absolutely outrageous tech system like it's like they sat around on a whiteboard and were like what is the most uh generic, generic. name we can come up with yeah. uh no we need we need 10 of those <laughs> let's let's get to work <laughs> uh he had this great quote when he did this like hour long um, interview with Marlon Humphrey for the Ravens channel, kind of about his business executives. And he used to tell like his um, workers, like when you're on the phone and you're trying to make a sale, you'd better smile when you get a no, because that means you're one step closer to a yes. Our stats say that if we get a yes for every 22 no's, then I guarantee you, we better get 22 no's by lunchtime. This is basically like, I'm going to push you and I'm going to push you until you get people to basically be like, all right, all right. So it's truly like a fearless salesman. Uh, this is a fucking great He might have sold some knives along the way he too. He very <laughs> much might have. It is a great quote about business, Neil. I was thinking about you. And he said, I read this. He said, every day there's a wolf at the door. And some people are scared of that wolf. Other people are motivated by that wolf. I, loved, I am the fucking wolf. <laughs> I loved the fear of the wolf. I woke up every morning thinking that that wolf was going to blow my house down. So I worked every day like it was my last chance to prove myself. When you continue with that attitude, that underdog attitude, that fear of failure, you're willing to put the drive in, then you're going to win. Hell yeah. <laughs> the fucking wolf, baby. You had another quote uh, in here about uh, he hated putting a suit on every morning. Did you, did you share that one? Yeah. So he basically was like every day he had to put a suit on every morning. He told himself because then it would feel like a real job. Like it's he's like very much shirt Monday. Exactly. Yes. And I feel that way. Even now, like I have to, I, I've made a point the last year or so. I don't, I try not to wear sweatpants, even though I'm working at home. It's like, no, I'm going to put some real freaking pants on. I'm going to put a wolf shirt on. Because that's pants. a little factor in success. It's like, you gotta, yeah, you gotta 
at least put some jeans on. You know what I mean? I'm not going to wear a suit, but I, I, I'm yeah. vibing with Steve right now. Oh, I honestly, like as someone who does know Steve and has had, you know, probably two or three personal conversations with him over the years, like I can't help but really like him. And we, we, as you'll hear at the end of this, had some, you know, a, a particularly kind of tension, tensious, contentious run in, uh, over Ray Rice stuff, but I can't help but really like enjoy him. I, this idea that like, it's no, it's not impossible for you to be a good person. If you're a billionaire, I feel like Bashati comes, you know, kind of upends that rule because I do think he's actually like a good person who has, you know, taken some arrows for, you know, he, I mean, he's never, there's not a lot of like really any controversy in his life. Like he's kind of just worked really freaking hard and done things the right way. So in 1997, he was basically like working his ass off. Like he would travel like 40 weeks a year on the road, just constantly hustling. He said he was waking up in hotel rooms uh, and he couldn't he even married remember. married or does he have a family yes, at this point? He, he was married. He, he, he borrowed money from like a business partner to be able to buy an engagement ring to marry his wife, Renee. Uh, they've been married for, uh, I believe, 40, 42, 43 years. Uh, uh, been together all this time. So he was basically like, hey, I need you to raise the family because I'm going to be like hustling constantly and she was like all right that sounds like a deal like i'm going to be as low maintenance as possible and so he would <clears throat> he was on the road like 40 weeks a year he said he was waking up in hotel rooms couldn't even remember like what city he was in and he said he kind of got to an age where he realized that his kids they were of the age when his father had died and he was basically like you know what i was i had i didn't have a father because my father was dead and now they don't have a father because I'm addicted to working like 60, 70 hour weeks. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of take a step back. And so like the second guy that he ever hired uh, at Aerotech, he basically put that guy in charge and was like, I'm just going to help out with long-term planning. I'm going to work one day a week and you guys can keep sort of, you know, keep the business churning. And Aerotech still, it has like revenues of like $15 billion a year. So even continuing, like he's he's still... A little bit involved in the like the long-term strategy of it but most of what he does now is kind of you know oversee the raven stuff which you'll see like he is truly the opposite of like a jerry jones or a tepper um so here's a quick quote he says i i always put business first i was lucky enough to have a wife who understood that and i just got to the point that i was wealthier than i ever thought that i knew could be would be and i knew i didn't need to make more money my boys were in the age what i didn't have a father it was just the right time. So he, he, because he was sort of, you know, it wasn't like mega, mega rich, but he was you know rich enough to where people would sort of start to kind of, um, you know, ask him about other opportunities. And so someone reached out to him in 1998 and basically said, Hey, the Florida Marlins are for sale. Are you interested at all in buying them? And he was like, no, like I, that baseball doesn't really interest me. It's not my thing. Uh, he was a big like college basketball fan, loves the Terps, has courtside seats with the Terps, was like good friends with Gary Williams. Basically had a quote one day and said, if I would have, I would have loved to buy the Maryland Terrapins, but I guess there's like a state law against that type of ownership. He could uh, probably buy the Florida State Seminoles. <laughs> this <laughs> is true. The Florida State Seminoles have really opened up a whole other area, avenue to yeah. that. Uh, and so in 1999, Art Modell, who had moved the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore, he had had all kinds of health problems, two heart attacks, two heart bypass surgeries and a stroke. And he, the team was in like a shit ton of debt. You know, the Modell's not super like great at running a team. 
and he was basically like, yo, I need to, um, I want to cash out. I want to like my kids to sort of some value in this. And, but I, Modell was kind of addicted a little bit to wanting to have like a, you know, a farewell tour. I think Modell sort of felt like he never quite got his flowers for, um, helping, you know, bring about like the TV deal to the NFL. And like Modell is one of the people who kind of helped think up Monday night football as a thing. And so Modell wanted a deal where he could sort of stay on as the majority owner for a few years and kind of apprentice, uh, like, you know, Tepper did. And Bashadi was like, all right, cool. I don't quite have like all 600 million to someone basically reached out to Bashadi. was like, Hey, would you give me some buying the Ravens? And he was like, well, I don't quite have all 600 million that it would require. And they were like, okay, well that doesn't matter because Modell basically was, wants this to be like a deal where you paid like 275 million up front. And then over the course of four years, you sort of learn from him, you sit behind the scenes, and then you have the option to buy the other 51% in four years. Bashadi was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to go to Mexico. I'm going to think about this with his wife. Basically came back and was like, yeah, let's do this. Like, let's go ahead and go all in on this. Bashadi described it as like one of the best deals that he could possibly have gotten because he said, because I had no power for four years, it was like going to college for four years, but you'd never get a test. I got a four-year apprenticeship where I did not have to make a single decision which was pretty sweet. So how was the team during that time? So interestingly enough, like when Bashadi was approached and the, the Ravens kind of were like, didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of revenues. They needed an influx of money of Bashadi's money to be able to sign a bunch of free agents. And those free agents in 99 that they signed ended up being the team that won the Super Bowl in 2000. So like they, did have like a, he did have a huge impact in that first Super Bowl, even though he was not was, the majority. And that was owner. Brian Billick. Yeah, that was that Dilfer was and the boys. TC Dilfer, Ray Lewis, yeah. Shannon Sharp, uh, Syracusa. Ed Reed was not on that team. Uh, okay. that, that was Rod Woodson. Back those guys, Chris McAllister, things of that nature. Uh, so was, was was Jamal Lewis on that team? Uh, Jamal Lewis was on that yeah. team. So that kind of set the table for like, you know, this is going to be an, an organization of success. Like you know. One of Bashadi's biggest things, one of the things that he later told John Harbaugh was like, I think it's like, I don't care, I don't want you to strive for greatness. I want you to strive to, for consistency because consistency is its own greatness. And a lot of uh, a lot of franchises make a mistake of they're not consistent. Uh, these big ups and downs, these big swings. I don't really I don't like that. Uh so when he bought this. Was Ozzie Newsom in, in yes. his role at this point? Ozzie so he was, had already been okay. Ozzy was the GM. Steve very much considers like one of his closest friends and mentors felt like Ozzy taught him so much about the league. Basically, is like Ozzy has a lifetime contract for whatever the Ravens, you know, as long as he wants to be with the Ravens, he's with us forever. Uh, and so Ozzy still works for the Ravens, even though he's not the GM anymore. Eric DaCosta is GM. He's just basically like a, a consultant oh, who's sort of, you know, number two in charge. Uh, I thought this was funny. The Washington Post did a big um, piece about Bashadi when he took over and said, uh, you know, that it was a good deal when he bought the Ravens, but not a great deal, uh, it, even though it had already increased like about $100 million since he purchased it within a year. Uh, this guy, what's this guy's name? Mark Giannis, who was like a financial sort of analyst uh, for things, said he did all right, but you have to recognize something. If you intend to keep the team, as I think he will, it doesn't matter what someone else will pay for it. You've still got to pay that $600 million. The Ravens are currently valued at $4.63 billion dollars. Uh, so it turned out to be a pretty good deal for Bashadi. And, and then and then he's still got equity in his company. Correct. Yeah. This whole time. And that's Correct. still 
and, and like as this is going along, that's continuing to just churn out cash and be a complete monster, right? Correct. His okay. his total net worth is like around eight billion dollars. Uh, so he's not like one of the most like mega wealthy owners in the NFL, but he's you know something like you know the hundred and forty wealthiest, hundred and fortieth wealthiest American. Yeah, it's uh, like his his net worth is gradually increased since he bought the team. Correct. Uh, one of the things that Bashadi was very um, like adamant about is that he said, I have no interest in notoriety, which I don't think is the correct use of that term. Uh, he said, I plan to be the least known owner in the country and the NFL owner. He just basically was like, I don't want to do interviews. I don't really want to sort of put myself out there and be like the face of things. I want to be involved, but I don't want to be in charge, which I think is really uh, interesting sort of way of putting it. Hey, said, There's KV, a I just got to say, yeah. he's also – it finally hit me like wh who he looks like. Cause he's a very striking individual. He looks like the is, yeah. Sopranos version of Bill Walton. <laughs> it's, he's Italian. Wait, an, Italian. That Bill is Walton, great. Comp. Right? Like, that is I, really I, good. I just, it hit me like, like a lightning bolt. It's like, cause it's just like, who does this guy look like? It just looks just like Bill Walton. Yeah. The very, the slick You're back right. hair, yeah. uh, but know, a very Italian, the, it's just like his Italian cousin. So, uh, yes. <laughs> That's a that is an excellent poll, I have to say. The one of the quotes that says he, there might there is a difference between being involved and being in charge. This he just said this during he, he kind of has some Steven Stallone in him too. Could Sylvester be. Stallone. Or, or no no sorry uh, uh no Seagal? who's the guy Seagal he's got Steven some Seagal. Steven Seagal without the harsh goat. <laughs> it's, like, it's like if Steven Seagal and Bill Walton. I think if Steven Seagal ever smiled like Bashadi has like he's very much a smiler yeah like he and he has these like the big you know white veneers uh and he very much like can't resist like grinning and laughing whereas Seagal you know always had the stone face look to him yeah. and never uh, anyway so this is a quote I, I there's a difference between being involved and being in charge I want to be very involved I just don't want to be in charge you can't hire talented people and then overrule them with less talented people like myself. I said, I've never overruled anyone. I might be a little forward and say to John Harbaugh, like, hey, let's take a look at this Isaiah Likely guy. He looks like he's a little different. I love productive people when they're from smaller schools, but it's not my job to pick them. When I was running Aerotech, I knew that business better than anyone. So I felt like I should be front and center. When I got into this business, I knew I would never catch up. There's always someone who knew better. Uh, it isn't really humility in my in my opinion. It's intelligence. I don't want to be front and center because there's always someone in this organization who will be smarter than me in every category. God, which is like enlightened. Cat. What a too, totally really rare. Like for the NFL owner to basically be like, yo, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Like I didn't. And I think, I don't think he thinks he's all like, he's not a guy who's like, I got smart because I, I got rich because I was smart. He's like, I, I hustled my ass off and that's why I got rich. And he, there's a, a quote there that basically was like, Hey, I'm not, um, you know, I, I really believe in like hard work, but I don't think like that I know what I'm doing and everything. And I don't really, I mean, it's just like a fascinating kind of cat. Like he, he loves the NFL draft. He's, it's the one thing where he's like, I love to sit and watch like YouTube videos of guys. And he's like, I'll go in there. He told Marlon Humphrey, this is like, I'll go in there and I'll watch their highlight tape. And then I'll be like, all right, I want to see like their worst plays because, you know, you can't hide your worst plays. Like, I don't need to see anybody's highlight tape. And he'll sit and like literally like break down film of and he's like, I don't I don't do it with the first round guys because I feel like my guys, uh, my scouting department is really good and they're going to be able to make a good decision with that. It's like I want to like see the third and fourth rounders, guys who might be like a diamond in the rough. And then I might make some recommendations about, go, let's take a chance on this guy, which is pretty awesome. Little ball knower. Yeah. 
not a ton of like, you know, real controversy in Bashadi's like ownership stuff. He did fire Brian Billick uh, after Billick went five and 11 the one year. So, so he hadn't hired Brian Billick. Brian he did not Billick hire Brian Billick. Coach. He took over with Very Billick as a guy. Okay. The only hire yeah. that he's made is Harbaugh. Uh, and, but I will say, he tried to hire your boy, the clapper, uh, Jason Garrett. <laughs> they offered Jason Garrett the job. They were very quite enamored with him. And Garrett backed out of it after getting the offer. Kind of held the, he told the Ravens he needed to sit on it for like 24 hours. And then in a kind of a humiliating way, like turned down the job to stay the offensive coordinator with the Cowboys. Jerry gave him a bump and basically said, you know, you're, I, I really want you to be the coach of the Cowboys someday. You're my coach in waiting. Like you're a future like offensive guru and genius. And so they is their second choice ended up going with John Harbaugh and you know, now like he's been there, you know, since 2008 and has had number one seed t- uh, twice now has won a Super Bowl. So turned out a little bit better for, for John than it did for the clapper. Do you, do you think the clapper would have been successful with the Ravens? I think probably, I don't know that he would have been as successful as Harbaugh. I think Harbaugh is really good at culture and has, you know, made a few mistakes here and there about maybe cycling some guys out. Uh, I always think that like he think he got rid of Anquan Bolden like right after they won the Super Bowl, and mm-hmm. that was like a huge culture mistake because it really pissed off a lot of guys and almost caused a mutiny. Like Ed Reed had to put down a mutiny at one point, uh, and then, um, but you know, overall, like John's really good at, at basically. Dominic Foxworth told me once like he's better at being a human being than any other coach that I've ever played for. Like he's not, it doesn't mean that he doesn't make like ruthless decisions because he has to, that's part of the job. And you can't like trust anybody in this job, like a thousand percent, but he's more human than anybody that I've ever dealt with. And he will actually, he won't lie to you. Uh, he won't mislead you. A lot of coaches will lie and basically say like, Oh, things are great. You're, we feel good about you. And then stab you in the back. He's basically be like, yeah, you're not cutting it for us. Like, you know, I care about you as a human being, but we need better plays from you. And so if you don't step up, like you're going to be gone. And I think that's what players value above all things. It's like they just want an honest assessment of, yeah. of who they are and stuff. But they had this great quote about uh, how he loves to evaluate like DBs and wide receivers and stuff. Although wide receivers would be a kind of a, a mark on his tenure. He said, I'm looking for girlfriends. <laughs> well, my scouting department is looking for wives. I want a flashy pass rusher. And those guys want linemen. I can't see what's going on in the, on the line. So I can't evaluate them. I like to be able to see what's going on and out, out and be in space. So was a great quote. Uh, just some other like philosophical quotes that he had that I thought were great. Uh, you know, people all the time ask him about like, how can I get rich and famous? And he's like, you know what? The only thing better than being rich and famous is it's being rich. You don't need the fame yeah, part. You dude. don't get anything out of it. Being rich and anonymous uh, is the key to life. Uh, yeah. and we might be doing the the wrong opposite quadrant. We're, we're be- becoming yes. less anonymous. <laughs> we might we're, be. We're definitely more not famous. Rich. And not- the, the three of us are not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I do, I've really kind of admired about Steve over the years is he's like a, um, he's a big, he's not a political person, really. He's given some money to like Republicans, he's given some money to Democrats, but what he cares really about is like people, and he's put up towards a ton of funding towards the historically black colleges and universities, uh, is particularly in Maryland. He, when he said, someone told him at some point that like the underfunding that the state was giving them was like close to like half a billion dollars. And he said, that really pissed me off. So I said, we got to make a big difference here. He started making huge donations and like putting all, you know, all funding all kinds of scholarships for HBCU kids, which I thought was, you know, pretty cool. Uh, and one of my, one of the great moments, I, this is like power, you know, Steve's a big Catholic guy, like giving tons of money to the Catholic church. So one of the most uh, invigorating things he ever did in his life 
was he went, he gave a bunch of money to, uh, the, you know, the Catholic church of Rome. And as a result, they let him and his wife, like go in and see the Sistine chapel all alone. And they cleared the floor and they let he and his wife like lay down on their backs for 45 minutes while a guide like took them point by point through the Sistine chapel. And, and he was like, it was like one of the most moving experiences of my life. That's, that's power right there. I think when you can clear the Sistine chapel, yeah. uh, for an hour or so. Obviously, like the Ray Rice stuff is sort of the one kind of, you know, black mark uh, on his tenure, just in terms of like what the Ravens knew and when they knew it. Uh, Yours truly was sort of embroiled in some of this directly uh, in that when I, in 2014, I'd been at ESPN for a couple of years. And when the Ray Rice initial incident came out, uh, I got, you know, a call from Don Venata, who's like one of the most respected uh, investigative reporters. He was like, I know you used to cover the Ravens. Uh, I need your help. Like, we need to find out, like, unpack, like, what happened here and when the what the Ravens knew. Bashadi was very, he loved Ray Rice. Like, he felt like, you know, Ray was in some ways like a, a family member to him. He always was like, anytime Bashadi would ask Ray to make like any charitable appearance, like, Ray would be like, yes, sir, I absolutely would do it. He really thought that he was like sort of a pillar of the community guy. And so when initially, what happened was you thought that the, the full video, full TMZ video didn't come out right away. It seemed like, and Ray, and excuse me, Ray Rice, I think mis- misled various people within the Ravens into thinking that he had like backhanded his fiance, Janae, which is horrible to even like parse this kind of stuff. And so the Ravens were like, okay, it was a drunken mistake. It was stupid. We're going to stand by you. Bashadi said at the time of the incident, he'll be back with the team. He'll definitely be back. I know how terribly disappointing it is to Ray and his fiance, how embarrassing it is for them, but I have compassion towards them. And so, you know, I will say like Bashadi basically and Ozzy both wanted to, Ray Rice was such an important person. They felt like to the history of the franchise, to their sort of iteration of, of the second kind of wave of Baltimore Ravens and the Super Bowl and all that stuff that they wanted to believe like, Hey, he shouldn't be crucified, which is such a silly word, but for one mistake, so they stood by him. And of course, what we found out when we did reporting is that they knew over time, maybe not right away, a lot more than they let on and that they kind of got walked out the plank to where they couldn't take it back. They, As they found out more shit about what happened with Rice, his lawyer told allegedly like President Dick Cass, hey, it's fucking horrible. He knocked her the fuck out. You guys, this is bad. They didn't really feel comfortable being all of a sudden be like, oh, guess what? After standing by Ray Ray, I saw this time we're now cutting him. So then when the video did come out, they were put in a position of like, oh, shit, like we look really stupid. Our story detailed a bunch of this stuff. And in, one of the things was that Bashadi had sent texts to Ray Rice basically saying, you know, on September 9th, I spent I just spent two hours talking to Ozzy. It was all about you. We love you and we will always figure out a way to keep you in our lives. This is after the punch video. When you are done with football, I will hire you to help me raise great young men. I still love you, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And Rice said, I know it's a rough time for all of us, all of you. I love you, and that will never change. And Bishotti said, I will help you make a great life indeed. I give you my word. And Rice said, you know, that means the world to me and my family. We greatly appreciate and thank you. Rice, at the time, told a bunch of friends that he felt like he was sort of being blackmailed into staying quiet. Like, there'll be a job for you if you don't talk about this stuff. Goodell was kind of hung out to dry on some of this stuff where he claimed that no one within the NFL had seen this video. 
as we had had sources saying that they did remember you guys remember that someone within the nfl offices called the associated press and left them a voicemail saying ray rice punched his wife the tape is horrible you you got to look into this further robert mueller did an investigation to try to find out like where this leak came from surprise surprise no one could ever figure out like what had happened where the alleged leak came from we knew at espn that you know, Chris Mortensen was told by someone, he never was willing to reveal that source, that Ray Rice had punched his wife. So all this talk about the Ravens didn't know was BS. They knew at some point and they didn't, we weren't able to sort of walk back what had happened. So eventually they come out, they cut Ray Rice. They criticize our, a lot of report. Although I will say, I've always been appreciative for Steve for saying this in the press conference. He was like, you know, I always thought Kevin Van Valkenburg was one of the best young reporters at the Baltimore Sun ever had so it, it hurts my feelings you know in some <laughs> this effect that that this would come from him uh steve and i eventually like you know hashed it out uh he was basically like there's no hard feelings between us like you have a job to do i had a job to do that's really kind of the only um i i would say you know i don't say black mark is kind of a tough thing to say but like you know smudge on this they, resume they messed of up. things like in, they did I mess bet up. if you asked them now yeah. he'd say they messed up like we, we he did. Got, well, like you said, they yeah. walked out on this plank. They're like, oh God, now we're trapped here. Like, and then, then they, they didn't do the right thing. Like, he, well, he you know a, what I think? He said, had a quote like, said, we all failed. I was kept abreast of every little thing we're doing here and we failed. So well, it kind of goes back to his, his whole thing of, Hey, I don't want to be the one making the decisions. Mm-hmm. And this is an instance where he kind of had to come in and be the one making the decisions. And if you have that mindset of, you know, I'm not like, I'm kind of in charge, but I'm more like you know, just hiring the people and they're in charge. Like that's, you know, that kind of puts those two things at odds with each other. Uh, when, when did the Ray Lewis stuff, the, the cobalt lounge, was that under Bashadi's watch? No, that would have been in, still... the, in the understudy no. years. So yeah, that, was that was 99. That was models. Mm-hmm. Uh, the white uh, mink coat, yeah. and, you know. All that so Bashadi loves Ray Lewis and they have had like a very close relationship for uh, many years. I, one thing that I had sort of forgotten about, but remembered the Ravens came really very close to signing Colin Kaepernick. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, like the cucumber. they, yeah, they've, they vetted the cuke and they were very, very much like, you know what? Like, I think we're going to um, go forward with this. Like Bashadi did an, even an interview. He said, we've had long conversations in the building about it. I've had conversations with a bunch of current and former players about it. I think you'd be shocked as who is against it and who is for it. It's not racial lines and it's not existing players or pro players or former players. I care about the fan base and I have to absorb the opinions of players who have been here. Collins made some assurances that there would be no protest, that he would be standing. And, you know, that would, I understand that that might hurt the brand. And I know we're going to upset some people, but, and I know we're going to make some people happy that he stood up for something and we stand for that too. Nonviolent protest is something we've all embraced. He said, personally, I liked it a lot better when he went from sitting to kneeling. I'm a Catholic, so we spend a lot of time kneeling, <laughs> which is great. So, totally but, Actually, kneeling is more respectful than, yeah. than standing. Yeah. So Bashadi never said this, but Ray Lewis claimed that they were, they were going to sign Kaepernick. But then, I don't know if you remember this, but Colin Kaepernick's girlfriend, now his, uh, I guess, partner, they have a child together, tweeted a picture of Ray Lewis and Bashadi at the Super Bowl. And when, when they won... And Bashadi was like massaging Ray's like shoulders on the the dais of the Super Bowl during the trophy ceremony. And so his girlfriend tweeted this picture from the movie Django Unchained of Samuel L. Jackson like doing the same thing, like massaging Leonardo DiCaprio's thing, and basically referred to uh Steve Bashadi as a slave master. And Captain Ray Lewis was like, that was it. 
that was like he, that was a, a bridge too far. Bashadi was like, I'm not doing this now. Like, why do we why do we want this? Yeah. So in some ways, like I, I kind of reading that making me think back is like, oh, man, Colin Kaepernick kind of like, fucked himself in that sense. Like he could have been back in the NFL and yet like his, you know, his camp was tweeting this kind of, you know, stupid shit. Because like I really do think like Bashadi is a very, as we said, super forgiving person in no way, shape or form is he a racist. Like he's giving tons of money to HBCUs. Like he's, you know, stuck up for Ray Rice, stood behind like Terrell Suggs and all these people who'd gotten various, you know, in trouble for things. Uh, and so that was a kind of a, quite the sort of, you know, I, I guess un unfortunate zinger for the Kaepernick crew. Yeah. Um, just a few coming into final notes here. Bashadi, I, I did say that there was only been one bad kind of mark on his resume. TC, Bashadi says that Tom Fazio is the best designer working today. Uh, he's a member. He has a home down in Baker's Bay. This is where he shot his uh, career I saw, best. I saw it. A 74. I, I saw uh, his place. Yeah. So he's a, he's a 10 wow. handicap. He says he doesn't ever think he'll get under a 10, but uh, he wants to fight to sort of, you know, stay at a 10 as he gets older. Uh, and he had some, he has the succession plan for the Ravens is sort of interesting Bashadi's kids are not involved in the team side of the business. They are involved in some of like the investment side of the business, but he's like, they won't take over when he's gone. He says, there's a lot of pressure in a high profile business like this. I just didn't think it was in the cards or fair to my kids to say, you're going to have this Baltimore treasure and you're going to be the steward of it. I don't think it's fair. I think it wrecks a lot of families. And so he's basically, I don't, I didn't promise to turn it over to my kids when I die. He's basically said, I'm going to leave most of my money to charity. I don't know, I, and I don't want to wait until I'm dead to give it all away. When I'm 72, I think I'll probably say that's enough. I'll sell the team, and I'll take that money and hopefully spend the next 10 years giving all that money away. So he's 63 Just, right now. And, and playing Tom Fazio courses. And playing Tom Fazio courses. Just a, a great quote I thought kind of, you know, in some ways like applied to what we do a little bit and said, uh, you know, if you're going to start a business, I, I recommend reading and researching and find something that you do well or better than others. Some people say, do something you love. Well, I had to spend the better part of my life explaining to people what I do. Oh, what do you do? You put engineers to work in Fortune 500 companies. Why do they need you? Well, because they can't find them. I'm a recruiting specialist. It doesn't sound too sexy, but it made me a lot of money. If someone opens up a flower shop and says it's a goal for them their whole life, that's great. Maybe it makes you happy. But I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I had to do whatever I could to be successful. And this is a great quote he told Humphrey. He said, "If he, Humphrey was like, I want to start a business. What, what advice would you have to me to you know, start a business? He said, I always tell players, if you want to start a business, don't do a damn thing until you retire. Because if you try to do it part-time, guys like me will eat you alive. I would love I'm to have- wolf, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have part-time competitors. Don't compete against people who need this for survival. Don't invest money in your friend's business because they won't fight to survive. They say they will. But they won't when the wolf, because the wolf is not at their door. <laughs> so I think Fuck that's yeah. that's Steve Bishotti. Hell yeah, Steve! I'm the off chance that you're listening. Uh, thanks for the the compliment all those years ago when I put you on blast uh, in a in a big investigative piece. Uh, and, and thanks for he he was really always kind to me. He in the very few times he talked, he was like I remember he said once to John Harbaugh, I told John a few years ago, there's no way that he's going to be here very long. Uh, he's like, I'm really sad to see you go to ESPN, but you deserve it. There's no way like you should be still here at the Baltimore Sun. And I was like, oh, man, like that gave me such a boost of like confidence uh, because I had been critical of the Ravens. I wasn't like some homer. And so for him to say, like, you know, your shit. Thank you. I, I was 
got me sort of a, a you know a boost. To, what a ledge! Well, KBV, that was that was them. the first time. Yeah, that was the first time you came across my radar screen. Was what, the Ray Rice thing? The Ray Rice thing. I'm like, Hell I remember, yeah. you know, I'd read some some Don Van Nata stuff, but I'm like, oh, like who's who's this guy? This is KBV Van Walkenberg. He's a he's a, a capital J investigative reporter <laughs> here. You know, you might have sent me a, a DM about that TC. Like, man, that was a riveting read. So uh, I'd have to go look back through our yeah. DM history if uh, if <laughs> Elon still allows such things. So. <laughs> All right, oh, I think shot I'm all it. you know. I'm I'm all like God. Two guys at completely opposite. Very ends. I know you put Tepper at the bottom right now, and you put Bashadi probably in the top two or three. I mean, KVV. What's the? Has there been any kind of change in organizational philosophy from Newsom to DaCosta, or is it kind of? You know, I think TBD. that. Yeah. I would say a little bit TBD. I mean, Ozzy's last um, basically act as GM was to say let's go get Lamar Jackson. Like let's trade up into the first round. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there was a little bit more, uh, I would say DaCosta has helped them shift to a little bit more of like taking bigger swings on things. So I don't know that like Ozzy would have signed Odell Beckham. I don't know that Ozzy would have traded for Roquan Smith. Like Ozzy was very much like we have to sort of, we, we draft well, we can home grow guys. And I think DaCosta realized like, we just, we're going to have a problem with evaluating red receivers so let's go get one. Like let's fix it us, once and like, for all. Yeah, it gives us some credibility. And then we'll sort of fit it in with, you know, with Perryman or with, say, Flowers and stuff. And, you know, they're they're much more explosive offensively. The, the Ravens football was so bad aesthetically for, like, 10 years. It was, like, after the Super Bowl in 2012 until, like, Lamar took over. It was, like, eight years of, like, hey – they're still he drafted, winning. He drafted the most trash group of wide receivers. It really year after year after And they were year. still winning because they still had good defenses and Flacco was like competent enough, but they were so uninteresting to watch. I remember yeah. one year they had a like a do or die home game in the last game of the year against the Bengals. If they won, they would go to the playoffs. And if they lost, they would not. And the Bengals had scored on like a fourth and 12 and like won the game. That was remember that when the Bills made the playoffs too and they got all those donations to Andy Dalton's charity. So it was the the upper parts of the stadium were almost empty. That was how miserable people were because they were like, you know what? I do not give a shit. This team is so yeah. not fun to watch. And Bashadi at that moment was like, we have to make a change. Like we we cannot simply be like we got to be an entertainment problem. Unappealing, too. exactly. And I think that was smart of him. Like he, you know, a lot of owners would have been like, well, we're still you know safe and. We're still fine. We're still consistent. Well, but he's like, no, I think, it has to be. Fun I think to like watch the perfect, like two two perfect examples. Of like their mentality is like Keaton Mitchell. Like bringing him in is like East Carolina kid. Like I can't believe nobody took a flyer on him and he was an undrafted yeah. guy. But also like his father played for the Ravens. So exactly. And like Kyle yeah. Hamilton, like yeah. you know, runs a really really shitty forty time and like falls on people's draft boards and they're just like God, that guy's cool. like we're gonna take in the right him. spot. Like, yeah, he's just a football player. Yeah, he is. You know? And like that's their scouting and their their you know talent development. So, yeah. so we'll see. They'll be they're you know I think they have a decent chance to win it all this year, but yeah. uh, you know they'll have some home games to do it. And Bishadis, uh, I just think he you know he's very much like low key, like loves to drink Bud Light and loves to wear flip flops and is just not a pretentious person at all. Like very much like a he still you know, when he went, when they went to the Super Bowl. He flew like 150 of his friends, including his old high school coach who thought that, you know, who didn't play him or whatever. 
and his, his high school coach joked for years. He was like, Oh, you know, you're the first player I've ever had to get to the NFL, you know, as an owner. So that's great. <laughs> so. Whereas Tepper would have, Tepper would have like flown his high school coach to the game and then like not Locked let him, him out the yeah. game or something. Taught yeah, him a lesson you know? years later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. so, all right. Oh, that's good it. Good stuff, guys. That was a fun one. Good stuff. Yeah. See you back next time. I guess for episode seven. I think this was six. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. building yeah. something. Seven. We are. Yeah. Owners. All right. Great to be with so. ball knowers like you guys. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ball knower, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you, ball knower, TC. Favorite rapper, hey, hey. now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The apps.